Hello, everyone. I am Taylor Remington, and welcome to the first Ruach podcast episode. some exciting content to share on this podcast that will uh, slowly drip out over time. I'm super thrilled um, about this first episode for multiple reasons. Um, The first being that my wife is the one sharing in this inaugural episode. No greater honor and privilege to have her be the foundation to where we want to grow this podcast. And first, I'll just uh, give a little background on her and to brag about her for a second. Um, just in case you don't know who she is. Uh, My wife, Megan, is currently getting her PhD in ancient Judaism at UCLA. Um, She knows what people call biblical Hebrew, modern Hebrew, and four dialects of Aramaic. So yeah, she's quite brilliant, and her dissertation that she's writing is actually somewhat connected to this topic that we will uh, be exploring in three parts. So these first three podcasts will be a sort of mini-series centered around the topic of creation or what some might call the earth or the natural world and our relation to it as sons and daughters of Hashem. We felt that the uh, we felt the spirit prodding us uh, to start talking about this topic especially in this season uh, wherein the world is going through a shift due to certain market practices in China that have led to this corona season And um, we have to start becoming sensitive to the earth and its needs in in this new era. And so uh, we will will discuss in these three uh, upcoming podcasts how our spiritual practices are intrinsically connected to how we take care of the earth and how we treat all of creation. And uh, just as a side note, because I know some people get kind of triggered by some of this language, um, my wife and I are not saying everyone needs to be vegan or go vegetarian um, or that you should go worship Greta Thunberg or anything like that. Um, All of this is a non-political issue that is truly centered in being a son or daughter of Hashem. So um, in this first podcast, uh, Megan will be tackling the topic of dominionism within the Bible and we'll sort of refocus our attention to the tilling or safeguarding um, command of Genesis uh, chapter 2. And like I said, she is brilliant, and I know you will enjoy this wonderfully relevant uh, first episode. So, enjoy. Shalom. Hello, everyone. I'm so honored to be here with you today and to tackle some of my favorite questions about one of my favorite things, the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to be approaching this subject from a set of questions, and that set of questions is largely based around what is humanity's relationship with the earth? How can we have a harmonious, productive, interconnected And truly life-giving relationship with the earth. What does that look like? 
What precedence do we have for that in scripture? What do we see in the Hebrew Bible and the earliest stories about creation that line this up for us? Do we have anything in the life of Jesus that would illuminate for us how to map this out, how to really take this journey step by step? And the answer to all of those questions is yes. We have so many things to look at, one of which um, today is, is going to be really fun and really exciting. The reason why we're going back to Genesis um, is, is multifaceted. On the one hand, Genesis starts off uh, the Hebrew Bible and sort of introduces us um, to the world. And to our interaction with it. So in that way, it's a great place to start. And the other facet of it is that these verses in Genesis chapter 1 have really uh, been the foundation for what's known as dominionism or dominionist theology. And this is an ideology that's been around for, um, for a while Um, But we have seen its negative effects uh, really prominently in the modern world. And we can touch on some of these things throughout our conversation, and I'll bring it up kind of throughout and give some examples. But just so you know where, where where the base of this conversation and these questions are coming from. And just to clarify, when we talk about dominionism or when we talk about dominionist theology, I'm not talking about anti-rulership. I'm not uh, criticizing all forms or all verbiage or all vocabulary that talks about rulership or sonship or authority or anything like that. It's just specifically addressing this one interpretation of what it means to rule. And dominionism has a specific um, feel to it and has a specific impact in the world. And usually accompanied by dominionism is a lack of care for the world, um, an assertion of one's selfish will, not necessarily the kenotic will, which is the self-emptying will. Um, there's a lot of conversation to be had around this topic, but I just want to clarify that It's not that rulership is bad or governance is bad in any sense of the word. It's just clarifying this certain expression and interpretation of how to how to interact with the world. And this can get complex, um, which is why we're going to dig into the biblical text and and see what really lies there. But it's worth looking into and it's worth clarifying and really delineating what we mean by rulership or sonship. Um, Instead of using words carelessly um, or unknowingly even, just bringing in a sense of conscious usage and awareness um, that ultimately brings us into deeper connection and manifestation. So that's why we're starting in Genesis, and our base questions are, what is our interaction with the earth supposed to look like? 
Without further introduction, let's go ahead and dive in. Starting off in Genesis 1. Now, after humanity is created, we have this commandment in verse 28 of chapter 1 that God blessed them, meaning blessed humanity. And then in the verse above, it says male and female, he created them. But we kind of have this illusion that it was sort of this androgynous single human because earlier in verse 27, it talks about in the image of God, he created him. Um, Most Bibles translate that as in the image of God, he created them. But this um, is misleading. It said it's uh, he created him is actually what it says in the Hebrew. So this is where we get this idea of the sort of unified human that has both male and female within it. So kind of this complete human. So God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Case in point, this is the foundation of the dominionist perspective. A lot of times, if you, um, you may have had conversations why someone is doing something, um, normally it's to justify some wrong or uh, unethical act done against the earth or something harmful and you say why are you doing that and a lot of times the answer is from a christian at least um because i have dominion over it this is a trope you'll hear over and over um and maybe even more now that you have an ear for it so we're going to tackle these words and dig into the biblical hebrew looking at where this ideology of dominionism comes from, and then seeing how it plays out as the Genesis narrative continues. So we're going to start with the word dominion. Now we're going to start with that one because it first comes up earlier in Genesis 1.26. This is when God is talking to itself, saying, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, etc., etc., So there's sort of this pre-command where God is speaking among themselves, because in this instance, um, it's in our image according to our likeness, which is a whole other podcast in itself. But we have dominion first there, and then we have the more specific command coming in verse 28. So we're going to start with this word dominion. Now in the Hebrew, this word is rada. Resh Dalit Hey. And the most simple translation is to tread or rule. But in every instance that this word is used, it's a pure human dominion. All examples in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament are used in regard to humans ruling over humans or humans ruling over some other aspect of the earth. And normally, It's accompanied by harshness or force. Now, 
before we move on to this other word, subdue, I want to just call back to this more um, general context of what Genesis 1 is trying to communicate. God making human humankind in our image and our likeness, in God's image and God's likeness. So there's there's a connection here. The text is trying to draw a connection between what God is like and therefore what humanity will be like or how humanity should be. So now going back to the word rada, that word for dominion, that word is never applied to God. Not once. Not one time. It's humans ruling over humans or humans ruling over some other inanimate object or other animals or something. It's never applied to the character of God. Now, that should be the first little flag in our minds. Hmm, why is that? Well, let's move to the next word and we can continue that thought process. This next word is subdue. Verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it. And this word subdue is kavash, chaf veit shin. This word is uh, an amplified and more violent version of rada. The word in its most easy translation is to subjugate or violate. Most of the instances you can go and look, I encourage you to do your own study. Most of these instances are in the context of physical or bodily violation, rape, ravishing, trampling. It's not a pretty word. It's not a very uh, divine character word either. Only once is it used of God performing this verb. And that's in the context of him trampling on our iniquities. Otherwise, it's never once applied to the character of God. And neither is Radha. So what do we do with this? In this context of this passage that's obviously trying to show humanity as made in the image and likeness of God. And then turns and uses these two words that are never applied to the divine in the Hebrew Bible. Hmm, that should get us to scratch our heads a little bit. We should then look further and ask, maybe we're missing something here. How can we clarify or further explore what this means? I don't know about you, but I feel um, a severe discomfort about those two words being applied to God and then to his representations, his images, his, um, in the Hebrew, it's tselem, means image or icon. Um, can also mean idol, but we won't get into that. On the earth. So, where do we look to then? Let's continue then through on Genesis and see what we find. As you know, or maybe you don't, the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 are quite different. 
you may have come across this in your own readings and thought to yourself, hmm, it kind of seems like creation is repeated. What does this mean? What do we make of this? They're similar, but they're also quite different. So where we're coming from, at least in this conversation, is not to necessarily go into uh, the variety of academic perspectives um, from these two creation accounts, as we call them. We could look at it. um, These are my specialty from the perspective of redaction criticism, source criticism, text criticism, but we're just going to go ahead and look at it as a unified flow of scripture. So just from an overview, just kind of an aerial perspective of the text, chapter one is cosmic. Chapter one seems like you've got a step is taken back and you're seeing this macrocosm of what happened in creation. In Genesis two, you kind of feel like you're zooming in. We're zooming in on the garden, which is this microcosm of all of creation. And you have a God that's, uh, that's imminent. You have a God that's interacting. You have a God that's forming humanity instead of just um, making humanity. You have a God walking in the garden instead of sort of speaking out into the cosmos and speaking everything into existence so there's a contrast here Um, and for our purposes i think it's best and most intuitive to look at it as genesis 1 being this macro perspective and then zoning in and zooming in and chapter 2 and for this commandment purpose we have this commandment to radah and kavash, that's the de, have dominion and subdue. We have this twofold commandment given in chapter one. And guess what? We also have a twofold commandment given in chapter two. So go ahead and look with me at Genesis 2.15. This is already after the human is created. And it says that the Lord God, Yodhevave Elohim, which, by the way, is only used in this second creation account in Genesis chapter one, it's exclusively Elohim. So that's another interesting um, dimension to the text. So, verse 15, chapter two says, The Lord God, Yodhevave Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. Okay, so here we have our twofold commandment, just like we had a twofold commandment in chapter one. But these words are quite different, as we'll see here. This first word that's used is till, which in Hebrew is avad, Ein Beit Dalit. And Avad means, in its most simple translation, to serve, worship, work. And this is actually the same word that was used in temple worship. So when you have the Israelites and later Judaism 
having their worship or temple service. This is the word that's used. If you serve or worship in the temple, this is the word that's used. It's also interesting to see how it got translated or um, incorporated into our idea of a church service. We've still kept the idea of service. Very interesting. And this idea of serving, worshiping, um, is directly connected to this idea of tilling or cultivating. Now, this is a much different perspective already than what we saw in the Genesis 1 commandment. This idea of service, as we all know, is most perfectly emulated in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. He becomes the ultimate example of the servant in that he came not to be served, but to serve. We also have the foreshadowing of the suffering servant in Isaiah. So this idea of service is of uh, is a core quality of the divine character. It's really beautiful. So unlike those those two other words where we never see applied to God in any way throughout the Bible, we have this one right away, emulated perfectly in the life of Jesus. Now, the second word you might be much more familiar with. Going back to verse 15, put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Now, this word keep is all over. This is a hugely common word, and it's the word shamar, shin memresh. And this is to keep, guard, or observe. This is um, keeping the commandments. This is keeping the covenant. This is um, keeping your heart. This is um, all over in terms of relationship with the divine, with God. Fundamentally, shamar or this keeping is essentially relational. In every instance, it's a relational word. And not only is it relational, it's also divinely attributed. God keeps us from evil, keeps our life, keeps his covenant. Da 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 da. We could go on and on and on. So, already right away, we see that this twofold commandment is so completely different from the one that's cited way more often. I'm right there with you. If you would have asked me some years ago, what's our relationship with the earth supposed to be like? I would say subdue it and have dominion. (laughs) Right? (laughs) No one's calling us guilty for that, but we've just really missed this clarification um, of some real practical um, ways of doing that. And that's in Genesis chapter 2 serving and keeping it's a completely different perspective and when we reflect on how this dominionism how this dominionist idea has been built on that genesis 1 passage that trickle down effect is really significant the trickle down effect of having dominion over creation affects 
the hierarchy within humanity itself, the hierarchy or dominion over women, over slaves. It's been used to justify um, slavery, animal abuse, human abuse, pollution, deforestation, unethical slaughterhouses. We could go on and on and on of all the examples that that this dominionist idea um, has had on society. And when inserted into Christianity and when expressed and perpetuated by Christianity with the divine authority, it's really problematic. And we can still see that perspective and its hold on Christianity and Christians today. Hence the reason why it was on my heart to talk about. Hence the reason why we can look back to the biblical passages, look back to the scriptures and dig for something deeper because something just doesn't seem right about that and doesn't resonate with the character of God that we know. Now we're going to keep going here for just a little bit longer and we're going to feel out and look at specifically how we see this um, emulated, this exampled in the life of Jesus. And we're just going to take one. There's a lot of ways that we could take this, but um, we're just going to look at one example, which is of Jesus and his interaction with calming the sea. And this event is recorded in each of the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, it says that he rebuked the winds and the sea, and they became perfectly calm. In Mark, it says he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. In Luke, it says he rebuked the wind and surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Now, one thing that I think is really beautiful about this is that there's a relationality. There's a relationality between Jesus and creation. Jesus can speak to creation as if it is alive, because it is. We know creation speaks. Maybe we just need to also take part in listening sometimes. I think the earth is speaking to us about a lot of things at the moment, and most Christians are turning an ear. Jesus then, in these examples, really does serve as the example of how to rule. I don't want to completely abandon this idea of rulership or anything like that. I just want to look a little bit more closely to see what the biblical texts actually say, to see what these words are really speaking to us. And in, in, it, in an example like Genesis, we see how something on a broad scale can become so deformed and so distorted when all we needed to do was look to the next chapter over for a clarification of what that's actually supposed to look like, what our relationship to the earth should actually be fundamentally based on. Jesus really does continue the tilling 
as well as the guarding, providing this example as the image of the invisible God. The subdue and have dominion command, by the way, is never repeated again to humanity. And like we just said above, nor is God ever described in either of those terms. Rada and Kavash are never applied to God, never applied to the character of God and his relationship with anyone other than the one trampling on the iniquities verse. But other than that, it's not a relational um, bar that he sets for God's relationship to humanity or the earth for that matter. And if we really are made in the image and likeness, which I believe Genesis 1 and what that says, then maybe those aren't the words that we should be focused on. Maybe it's those in Genesis chapter 2. Those two words that we see in Genesis 1 are essentially verbs of force, violation, and oppression. And unfortunately, that's what we see their fruit to be, as seen in dominionism. That's what their fruit has borne. That's what that tree has borne. Now, we don't see those things in the life of Jesus. And where he is said to be ruling, where we know he does rule, we know he does govern, we know he even, our Bible's translated as dominion, but it's a different word for dominion. He does it as a shepherd. And shepherds, as you know, are among those they shepherd. It's not a power that comes from above or from without, but actually from with and within and among. This power, our authority, our rulership, this kingdom, whatever scriptural word you want to bring to the table, whichever one you work best with, is not one that's far away or meant to be on the outside. It's instead bubbling up from within you, just as Jesus constantly taught to reminded and even rebuked his disciples to look within for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you and within me. This inwardness, this looking inwardness, then flows outward naturally, like the rivers flowing from Eden. What a beautiful comparison! Satisfies all of our surroundings with life giving care and permeating nourishment. As a shepherd, we are walking then among those who we care for. And just like in Genesis 2, like Yodhevave Elohim walking in the midst of the garden, in the cool of the day, we commune and can connect and pay attention to each aspect of this holy place in which we live. What a beautiful way. To cultivate that connection. Now I'll end with this, just this idea of paying attention, this idea of um, paying attention has, you know, has maybe negative connotations for you as a kid with your parents saying, pay attention, Megan. But in biblical terms, in the biblical translation, it's seem lev, which is to place your heart upon. 
And I think that this is the manner in which we can look to this question and look to these verses, is to pay attention, to turn our heart or put our heart upon. And putting our heart upon sometimes hurts. It can be risky. There's a lot of pain involved when we have to face the things that have been unjustly done to those whom we view as the stranger or the capital O, other. This flows into a lot of different conversations about um, the oppression of women, African-American slavery in the United States and that part of our history. These things hurt to pay attention to. And now the earth is wanting us to pay attention to her. And I say her because across the board in biblical Hebrew, the earth is always a feminine noun. For for the first human, for Adam, we see that connection with Adam and Adama. Adam is the human and Adama is the ground. That connection is already embedded within us. We just have to pay attention. 